Blog Talk Radio. Hey, hey there. Greetings, ladies and gents. It's the return of JL Radio. I'm your host, Jessica LaShawn, and we've got so much in store for you. So get those hot toddies and those snuggies ready as we prepare to get deep just before your bedtime. But first, let's kick it off with a little bit of a classic hip-hop. Lifestyle proves a move behind the waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Things are shorter. Nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot. My son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a place. Knowledge. If coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing. Fashion designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people holding dough. No parole. No rubbers. Going raw. Imagine law with no undercovers. Just some thoughts for the mind. I take a glimpse into time. Watch the glint read. The world is mine. It's Imagine that. I free all my Paradise life relaxing, black, Latino, and Anglo-Saxon, Amani exchange the range, cast, lost profits your bath, free at last, brand new whips to crash, then we laugh in the illa path, the villa houses for the crew, how we do, trees for breakfast, dime sexes have been stretches, so many years of depression make me vision, the better living, type of place to raise kids in, opening eyes to the lies, history's so foul, but I'm as wise as the old owl, plus the gold child, seeing things like I was controlling, click rolling, tricking six digits on kicks and still holding, trips to Paris, I civilize every savage, give me one shot, I turn tripe life to lavish, political prisoners, set free, stress free, no work release, purple and threes and jet skis, fill the wind breeze in West Indies, I think Coretta Scott King, mayor of the cities and reverse things to Willie's, it sound foul, but every girl I meet to go downtown, I'd open every cell in Attica, send them to Africa, Africa. imagine that. Today, any 
Once again, it's Jessica LaShawn Radio. This is my big comeback to radio. It's, I took about four years off, and we're starting it deep. I want to thank everybody that's on hold and all those that are listening to me as we figure out how to work the six boards. Thought we had that together. We did, so I was randomly saying things back and forth. But you guys are so supportive. You love me so much. You didn't even judge me. Right now, I'm going to make all my guests live. And I'm going to introduce you. Yay, I hear you. Okay, I'm going to introduce you one by one. I know who that is, and I don't trust that person, so I'm not making them live. <laughs> All, right. All right. First, let's start with the wonderful Stephanie Rose. You're live on the line. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you quite well. Awesome. I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yay. Would you yeah. like to tell anyone, well, everyone listening, about, about your passion for education and Well, I am certainly an advocate for education and a diversity inclusivity specialist as well as trainer. So thinking about how to effectively educate minoritized students is completely important for me in my own scholarship and activism, and I'm just really excited to be able to have this conversation tonight, particularly with so many things going around um, the Internet and news media cycles. So thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. All, right. All right. We have my good friend, Hello, everyone. Oh, hello. Oh. Yay. Well, well, Tim, can you let us know a little bit about, about you? you? Well, Is that Tim Lee? Yes. yes. Tim Lee, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am delighted to be a part of the show. Thank you so much, Jessica, for uh, thinking of me. Um, I uh, have been, for the life of my professional career, uh, dedicated to you know, enlightening and encouraging and inspiring uh, African-Americans, particularly the African-American men between the age of 13 and 18. Um, although I'm not a uh, certified teacher in the classroom, um, I teach wherever I go. I've been a youth minister for the past 11 years. Um, <clears throat> I've been in editing for five uh, years and I'm currently in higher ed uh, at Chicago State University uh, in housing, but with the programming, the next level programming that we, you know, put on is inevitable. But um, I'm certainly interested in hearing what everyone else has to say and to contribute uh, in whatever way I can. All right. Next, next on the line, we have Kim. Hello, everyone. How are you? Are <laughs> those? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So 
um, I'm an educator in uh, one of the largest um, public school systems in the United States. I'll let everybody kind of linger on that one and think about which one. Maybe by the end we can figure that out. Uh, I specialize in special education, so I deal with an extremely marginalized population um, in our urban school system. So I see... I see just about everything, and like I said, these are the most marginalized students, so just think of what a typical student in an urban setting has to deal with every day, and then multiply that times 10. So I am an extreme advocate for equality in our schools and making sure our students um, are equipped to go out into the world and, and you know, be productive citizens and... Um, just making themselves better and, you know, being global citizens and really being critical thinkers. So I'm I'm excited to be on the line with you guys tonight. Awesome. Um, I'm happy as well. And now we have Sam. Sam, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? How goes it, everyone? Uh, my name is Sam Bajarko. I have been in education for 11 years. I've taught fourth grade through high school. I um, have served as, a, as an administrator. I worked at Charter School Network, CPS, as well as suburbs. Um, I'm recently piloting an incentivized education program. I started a nonprofit called uh, the 18 Educational Consulting with Response and Intervention to try to um, find culturally responsive alternatives to education to um, help bridge the achievement gap with the vast majority of the students who are underserved, whether it be um, minority or, or special needs, uh, to find a way to increase their acumen by finding ways that speak to them. So I am also um, pleased to be here tonight and, and contribute to the conversation as, as best I can. All right. All right. So for those of you just now tuning in, this discussion is about the miseducation of educating minority students. We've seen numerous accounts of minority teens being rude, disrespectful, aloof within the classroom, different things like that. Many are saying that they aren't able to learn until at home training, and we're just here to inquire if it's really hard to teach black and brown youth, how can educators from all aspects within the arena of academic development provide a better platform to engage and empower you. So if you have any insight, any questions, feel free to hit up the phone lines at 646-2000-4444. Again, this is JL Radio. One of the first questions that I have for our esteemed panel here, I'd like for you to think back and reflect and let us know how your high school, your personal high school experience can be compared to the experience of the youth now. And possibly speak on any attributes that would help the youth today that are missing from when you were in high school. Um, I don't know how I can know who's ready to speak, but uh, if you could just well, make something on the end. Well, I, I, I went to a magnet high school, so I don't think that's a typical experience for the vast majority of our students because I feel like it's catered to a certain demographic. But what I'll say um, is the reason you kind of alluded to the fact that is it difficult to teach black and brown babies? 
And me personally, I don't think so. I think the, the missing um, piece is the cultural, culturally responsive um, um, portion where you meet students where they are. So I think because the vast majority of the educators in place or the educational stakeholders are in place are not familiar with the culture of the demographic that they serve, they may have difficulties. But I, me personally, I, I couldn't speak to have, and I've taught in, you know, the most impoverished communities that, you know, um, they speak of on the news, the Inglewoods, the, the Roselands. I've, I've taught there, and I felt like I've made the most gains because I was able to, able to help that student navigate a course he wasn't familiar with because I could help, I can identify. So, for example, like, I know in a traditional school setting, they may use like an egg timer or something of that nature. I might use the instrumental to one of their favorite songs. So the buy-in in, 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 the, in the class allows for less infractions, allows for uh, less um, opportunities for poor classroom management because we're engaged. We found a commonality, so therefore we can now move towards a, a common goal. So I really think that's the you know the vast majority of teachers who aren't connected. Like even if we're looking at um, the young lady that was pulled from the the chair from the SRO, the teachers seem to be unfamiliar with her um, her lot her life, uh, the things that were was occurring in her life. The assistant principal that was called into that room also seemed unfamiliar, and the SRO. So right there, that 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 lack of cultural response that lack of, of understanding or familiarity with what the student is going through created a combustible situation mm-hmm. when all you had to do was communicate. I would agree that the black and brown students are not separate species of students. So if you can educate any student, you can educate black and brown students. Um, part of the larger issue it are systemic issues that are operating at play in our educational system in very intersectional ways. Things that are happening at the the state, federal, district, all kind of levels, and the decision-making that's taking place is what's creating the environment that it appears to be more difficult for a certain population. But the reality is, if given the same kind of access to resources, if given the same kind of, um, again, cultural awareness, you have in many of these districts the the criminalizing of black and brown students in kindergarten. So all of those things that carry out throughout their educational experience and they erupt in a variety of different ways by the time they're in junior high and high school. So you have teachers and administrators walking into a space already thinking about black and brown children in a particular kind of way, then the relationship is going to be problematic. You even from from jump you haven't created an inclusive environment that respects the kind of cultural realities that these students are walking in the classroom dealing with. Exactly. I, I um, it, it, the craziest thing. I had a situation where uh, a student uh, was was displeased with the grade that he got on his test, 
and he was having a um, you know a, disc- a discourse with the the teacher. The teacher was white, he was black. They couldn't find a common ground, to, and she couldn't thoroughly articulate why he didn't get the grade he he thought he deserved. The student was a three point five student, never been in trouble, nothing of that nature. But at the end of the, the, the discourse, he said, you know what, I'm going to call my people. Now, because I'm culturally responsive and I'm more familiar with what he, the, the, the slang vernacular, even though we all have our ACT and SAT words, I knew he meant he was going to call his parents. This teacher interpreted as he was going to call people up there to do harm to her. It is, it, it, it is even, even in these microaggressions where our students are lost, like you can lose a kid for the whole year just off of something like this. So it, 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 is, it, is, it is the cultural responsive piece that our students are not buying into. So they don't, with, if they don't buy into it, then they don't see the value in it. And then we're doing a poor job of creating value for these students and for, and, and for the urban youth. And so then it leads them to make logical bad decisions like drug selling. Yeah, and I because would totally they agree. Up. Go oh, ahead. I'm sorry to interject. I don't, I don't want to dominate the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say know, that but... I, I completely feel the same way you do. And it's, it's, I think my high school experience was wonderful for me because there were people that looked like me, my mm-hmm. teachers looked like me and for those that did not look like me they understood me on some level we had some common ground that that built a bond between us um i can say that now for the majority of our students in high school they don't have that that mirror to look at they don't have an educator for the most part that looks like them Mm -hmm. um we have a lot of organizations out here that bring in you know people from outside of our urban areas and our culture, and they have no idea of what to do with our black and brown babies because they're, you know, they're they're not made aware of certain situations and certain vocabulary that students use, and they're just not prepared for it. So, for instance, and some of them don't uh, care. And this Let's is correct. And, and when they spade. come off, some of them do yeah, not when care. They come off, when they come off, you know, the kids can tell when it's not genuine. They can mm-hmm. tell when, you know, someone's being phony and when they're not, when they really don't care about what's going on with them. So when you hear for elementary check, school yeah. that I worked at, yeah, an elementary school that I worked at, um, every year or at every PD, they would start off with these facts. Um, now, mind you, it's a, it's a room full of Caucasian young women in their early 20s. And the facts would be things like, you know, um, the populations in the prisons, and of course it included brown and black babies and men. Um, the fact that in most African American households, uh, the language barrier coming in for a kindergartner, um, they're learning 1,500 less words a year than their Caucasian counterparts. And so now these these women that are coming in from outside of our culture and outside of our neighborhoods are having this, oh, I got to come help the little black baby feeling. And it comes off to the kids as patronizing. It's coming off to the kids as patronizing. And, of course, I'm not going to respect you. Why would I? And and can I add a piece to that? The Mm -hmm. the problem I, I also feel is, 
Like, it's a lot of experts, a lot of professionals having a discussion about a, a demographic that they do not include in the conversation. So what you're saying is, is, so, is so real. Like, there's this person who's going to come in who's going who's to have been, been, been bombarded with data and stats that may be inflated, and then they're going to say, I have, I have a plan, and I'm going to come to this inner city school and exact my plan without even doing needs-based assessment. Without even talking to the demographic that they serve, they talk at them. Then they talk at us who have the connection with the students, but we don't have the grandiose platform. So even then, they don't—they're not receptive to the people on the front lines and the people. It, it, it's almost like the doctors come in and talk to each other and give you the diagnosis without even asking the patient what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like to uh, add something. This is Tim Lee speaking. Um, and it gets back to, you know, we as a people. And, um, you know, I think Malcolm X and others have always um, preached uh, separation and self-determination. And if you really think about the historical um, relationship between blacks and whites, it is absolutely asinine for a, a black people to give their children, the next generation, deliberately hand-deliver them to their historic enemy, undeniably and arguably current enemy, and tell this enemy to teach your child. Is that enemy going to teach him or her uh, um, how to get ahead in life and how to um, beat his or her own children. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to happen. So all these even, things that, even, that we're talking about. All these things. Yeah. We're, uh, let me just finish. I'm sorry. All these points yeah, we're talking about uh, are certainly, certainly true. But at what point will we as a people say, you know what? We're going to pull out. We're going to pull our children out and we're going to do it our way and without um, asking for permission and asking for a, a grant and asking for, you know, validation or certification. You see what I'm saying in all those, um, um, you know, words. But I'll spoil there. No, no, you, you, you hit it. You hit a, a very key point, and that goes back to the cultural response piece. Like for the vast majority of my students, when I'm like, how many of you guys have had a black male teacher before? And I, they're like, you're my first, and they're 18. You know what I'm saying? So. Even there, even when there's certain conversations that they want to have, there's certain, um, um, you know, you, just leaving as the conversations that they want to have, there isn't a person in the building that they can identify with. Educational is like 17% male, and then it's like 5% black male. You know, and, and, and it, it is a problem that we're not teaching ourselves, we're not policing ourselves, we're not doctors, we're not healing ourselves. But we have to create that value. We have to we have to go into these schools. Like we need to uh, promote, you know, people going into education and people going into you know nursing and, and the, the law enforcement and things of that nature. Because we don't make a a hefty percentage in any industry. I took my students to Tech Week. It was a competition with six hundred you know startups who compete for like three hundred thousand dollars. 600 companies. It was four minorities. Wow. Four. And Tech Week's been going on for years. 
and then the the issue, like you you brought up an interesting piece about pulling these students out of out of out of schools and creating our own. But the vast majority of people who who are speakers take no action. They they'll stick with this system as as convenient. They wouldn't go to the march because it was inconvenient. They didn't want to lose sick days. Oh wow! <laughs> so we do need to get off our asses. Oh, that 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 threw me Honestly. back. Um, <laughs> I I don't want to go because <laughs> I need my sick days. Okay. It's we the have truth. A, the vast majority yeah. of people, you know, Facebook is they can they can tweet and sound, you know, uh, like they're down for the cause from the comfort of their home as they pause scandal on DVR and <laughs> then post something and then not do anything t- in their community. Like the the problem is 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 vast. It, it's, it's a huge problem, but it isn't like it's insurmountable. Like we don't know what we need to do as far as creating more. As uh, uh, employment opportunities, doing more mentoring. There are people who have, and I hate to pick on this this, this gentleman because I have I really don't have anything bad to to say about him. But there are people who have because he's he's sort of the representation representation of the Chirac uh, situation. But there are people who have a chief chief in their family that they don't even talk to a mentor. Mm. So <laughs> it goes back to like. Get, get your house in order. Then you get the block in order. Then you get the neighborhood in order. Then you can come to school. But don't drop your kid off if you're not doing your part because it's a holistic, it, it, it's that village piece. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, also add this to Tim Lee again um, that. You know, I don't know how old everyone is on this, um, you know, radio show, but I think that there is a, a drastic difference, as I'm sure our parents said when we were coming up in the 80s or 90s, you know, between this generation and our generation. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that the, a lot of the subcultures that are existing uh, created in a real sense by media uh, as that is one of the single most important um, shaping factors in culture and young people. Uh, you know, so watching TV, seeing how, you know, you know um, what they may think are projections or, excuse me, reflections, but are really just projections. Uh, and then they hmm. imitate art instead of art imitating life, and we've all heard that, you know, argument. So I'm saying that to say that, some of the YouTube clips that we've seen, um, not only about the police officer or security guards, the girl, but maybe the students taunting the substitute teacher that just re- went viral recently. Um, mm-hmm. Something, you know, those are things that we would have never done, I would argue, at, at that at that at that degree. Uh, and uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm <amazing. laughs> I, I, I'm trying to wait. I'm trying to wait because I'm. If I may, if I may for a second, I. Steph, your phone's breaking up. Yeah. Steph, your phone's breaking up. Hello. Uh-huh. You know, talking about urban space, particularly Chicago, and there's a strong aspect of urban planning on the dismantling of black communities. 
It's not about mm-hmm. you know whether or not um, men are in the home or not, but it's it's about systemic organizers sitting down in a mayoral office and saying we are going to tear down Cabrini and we're going to tear down other high rises, and then we're going to take a population that is already territorial, and we're going to integrate that population without any kind of any kind of neighborhood conversation. Without any, any kind induction of conversation yeah. about you know where where you have different communities of people now being forced to live culturally in different space because again the mentality of living in a high rise is very different than maintaining and living in a single family dwelling unit where you put people in communities like Roseland, Inglewood, what have you, and then you tell them we're actually going to close down more schools so that now we're overcrowding situations and making it more dangerous for you to actually go to school because you're not going to school in a neighborhood that's close to your home, but you have to cross mm-hmm. the track. And so you have to come from Altdale Gardens to go to Finger High School, which is in yep. Rose, which is a different community yep. of people that you already have issues with. So there's no yep. village that you're actually dealing with, and it has nothing to do with the black people who are there. It has everything to do with how the city itself has structured and look at how we want to gentrify, take back space, take back land, mm-hmm. and distribute or not distribute resources. And completely disregard us. Yeah, I agree with that particular uh, component. But to speak to what Mr. Lee was saying, um, I don't know if, if um, I don't know, we were, if they were, you know, better people or, you know, saintlier back then and they didn't give their kids, you know, their this much disruption. I think, you know, technology has just made us see it more. I think it's, it's always been, you know, homosexuals or whatever. I'm not picking on any particular demographic, but I hear people always say, like, there's more homosexuality on TV, this and the And I think it's probably always been homosexuals, uh, you know, uh, drug dealers, you know, whatever, whatever you may, whatever you want to um, uh, use as, uh, a subculture, as, as you refer, but what I think, and this is just me, like I'm 35, I feel like my age group, anybody between the ages of 28 and 40 and 45, has done nothing to contribute to the to the to the um, the, the, the hood. Like we benefited from the civil rights movement, we went to school, we got good jobs, and we moved. Like I don't, I, I didn't see a whole bunch of people going back starting programs. I didn't see people like buying homes in the hood and building them up. I didn't see that. And so these kids saw us leave. And we didn't we didn't impart knowledge that was imparted to us. We didn't we like even in the gang culture, like I grew up and my guys was affiliated and things of that nature. They got violated. They got checked if they didn't go to school, things of that nature. They, these kids that no one above older than them has taught them anything and then we don't include them in the conversation and then we tisk tisk and shake our heads at them. I wouldn't listen to me neither. <laughs> those those are very, very good points. We have a um a comment by Fred. He says, I think oh Hard to read this for a second. I think it's certain to divorce as well, and with certain kids with behavior issues, when they lash out at people that care the most, such as teachers and single moms. So 
so on. But when they get to school, it becomes a group of people that hang together and act up because they're feeding off of negative energy of each other, and it's easy to deal with an individual. But once it becomes two, three, four, five, and six kids together, it's hard to manage without crossing the line with students. And let's be honest. Majority of kids have slick mouths like adults, but hide behind the fact that they're adolescents when things hit the fan. Also, it's a huge distraction because you can't help but pay attention. One and two, one and two of the teachers lost class, class time from whatever subject they're teaching to become a disciplinarian for duration of the class. And with the evolution of social media and the internet, a lot of teachers are hand tied because they don't want to cross the fine line of teacher and student. And I know this very much so because I went to Morgan Park. So thanks for that, Fred. If you want to join in on a conversation, feel free to call in at 516-666-9820 or tweet me at Jessica LaShawn. Tim, I have a question for you. Since you work on the collegiate side of things and you've also worked within the high schools, what do you find that students, once they come to high school, are really lacking support-wise? Well... I think that there, if I can just maybe candid, and, and let me also say, I hope I'm not doing too many parenthetical and tangential comments, but I wasn't, I didn't grow up in Chicago, and I don't know if everyone here is in Chicago. I grew up in North Carolina where we were bused to schools for the purposes of integration and for the purpose of um, being ex- exposed to something we otherwise would not have been exposed to. Uh, so I went to one of the best high schools in my city because of that. So coming here to Chicago in the Chicago area eight years ago, I was very, very, very surprised to see how different, I'll start by saying, (laughs) the education (laughs) was (laughs) and how segregated it was and how, and, and, and and I'm really teeter on this line because I don't want to say, oh, we need to go to these white schools because they da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and if we're in these black schools, I mean, why is there such disparity? You know, that's another question. Oh, mm-hmm. but, I can answer you know, that. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let me say before we um, open that can of worms that, um, oh, my point, um, I, I see... I guess I just love anecdotes and stories, but I also see what Tupac was saying in his um, Resurrection DVD. He went to the the gifted school in Baltimore and saw all his friends who didn't go to that school and how they didn't appreciate education. So we were introduced to Machiavelli through some of his, you know, lyrics because he was introduced to it in school and then he injected that stuff in his art. What I'm seeing and what I want to say to answer the question briefly is what Tupac saw in his friends, and that is what appears to be an abandoned and or left behind group to sit and prepare for tests in two crowded classrooms with um, arguably, and this is, um, you know, um, exaggerating teachers who may not really care or who may not think they can make a difference. Then the older, more experienced, loving teachers being kicked out of the classroom, replaced by Teach for America teachers who are there for three yep. years, uh. no investment. Yep. You see what I'm saying? 
and then the students yep. come to college, and they have to enter on a, a, a provisional uh, status because their ACT is too low, their mm-hmm. um, general eds are not where they should be, and they, they, the first two years of uh, college are really the last two of six years of high school. And that's yep. the problem. Yep. That's everything you're saying is is pretty um, spot on. <laughs> the, the system was designed to fail from jump, though. Like mm-hmm. the money for schools come from property taxes, right? And we all don't pay the same property taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in Chicago, it's an average of like twenty five hundred dollars in property taxes, and then you go to Evanston, they paying like fifteen thousand. So right there, you even got five times the resources I got it. We just Look at property taxes without taking our percentages for where they, you know, what they go to. So it was designed to fail from jump. Mm-hmm. It just was. That's where the disparity lies because a school in Inglewood and Roseland doesn't have the fancy Mac one-to-one initiative as a school in Evanston or New Trier has. Mm-hmm. But aren't we they supposed to be benefiting? I'm sorry, are we supposed to be benefiting from the lottery? Isn't the lottery supposed to go toward education? Oh, that was only the first five years of the lottery. And you think it does go towards education. Yeah, that was just the first five years. That was just the first five years. equitably distributed. Yeah, I agree with you, There is no equitable distribution. There is no equitable distribution. Yeah, I I do want to add another question, and this was submitted by Tracy. She wants to know, why is it that the media shows us such a negative image of education and educational reform? Anybody want to take that? In a lot of ways, a negative image of educational reform. Mm-hmm. It's not a negative image of educational reform. Educational reform is actually just crap. Right now, it, I mean, it just is what it is. And you hear that from educators themselves across the board. So that that image is is a reflection of reality in terms of how much children were actually and communities at, at large were left behind with that No Child Left Behind Act. How much um, there that continues to exist in education systems where you have up to head start this this testing, testing, testing practice that has taken over, you know, pedagogical space, that there's no genuine learning and development that's really happening. And for the most part, teachers feel like their hands are tied because Mm -hmm. on on one end, we can criticize, you know, who is in the classroom, but a lot of them made the choice to be in the classroom and a lot of them have gone to do, you know, expert-level work to be in their field, but they are not the ones who are consulted when it comes to how politically yep. they are addressing yeah. education. When you start moving CEOs and um, cor- corporate executives into running schools because they, mm-hmm. they're running them in relationship to their budget yeah. as opposed to those who are actually – development psychologists and curriculum designers and stuff like that. You have a problem with education. 
Yeah, and that's, that's the issue that I have is when you, you have people who feel like just because I went to school, I can run a school or I could create educational policy. Right. No, there's years of training behind this. And you have to have a love for children and a, a want to continue to improve yourself educationally before you can yeah. step in front of a classroom of students. So when yeah. you have, you know, Bob the CEO from Verizon wanting to open a school, sir, what is your vested interest in this? Is it to gain more political connections? Is it to gain notoriety? Or is it because you it's a profit. a group of students who are severely uh, disadvantaged and disenchanted with their school system and you want to come in and do something different? That's the problem. We're not having those people making education policy. Exactly. Exactly. And then yeah. you have all of these companies who come in with a quick fix like Pearson who also doesn't consult with the teachers or consult with the students to find out what they actually need. And then a lot of these politicians, like the Reform Act and the uh, No Child Left Behind Act, these were just buzzwords to pacify parents to get votes. There was really no logic behind the plan. So the testing allows the, I guess, the administrators and the people above the teachers to hold, to put the onus on the failed school system on teachers. But as a teacher, I can tell you in one year, I'm going to get 15 different initiatives to implement. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be initiatives not, that have been around for years and they exactly. just rename them. They recycle and rename them. They're going to still use the same data. Like they collect data, but the powers that be don't even know how to interpret the data. Mm-hmm. And and there's no actual policy to evaluate the quality of the administrators. So exactly. you have the teachers that are being held to a standard, and to some degree you have the principals that are being held to a standard. But the area the of the directors, <laughs> the, um, those are in terms of there's no standard to articulate what is their effectiveness and whether or not they're actually, you know, implementing what the law is requiring. So, so where, uh, why, why does the accountability stop at the at the level of the local space? Mm-hmm. I would argue, and this is Timmy again, that, um, you know, and I think Amos Wilson said it in his a lot of his literature that reform has been going on since school started, <laughs> like since public school was initiated, I think by Thomas Jefferson, and they initiated it then so that we will not be overtaken um, by the British again. You know, so since we won, they felt that their intellectual and philosophical abilities kept the British off of our tails or whatever. And so they said it is going to be imperative that we educate our children so if they come back, we will be ready. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they've been doing all this stuff since, I would argue, the beginning. And a part of what someone else was mentioning is that there's a degree of social engineering that is happening um, because when you take your child at the sensitive age of four, take him out of your home, mother and father, and put him into, again, some um, external uh, pool of students to be inculcated with information that you don't control that you think is the same thing you got or is good for them, 
you, we have a whole shaping of minds, culture, consciousness, and the future in a real sense that we don't even know. So I, I have been against uh, education. If I ever have children, which I hope to have one day, um, I don't know if I send them to school. Mostly because of uh, the, the the politics and politics that are played on the uh, curriculum, which is probably doing more miseducation, as Carter G. Wilson coined, instead of real education. And when we know that we're being miseducated uh, and we are contributing to the uh, miseducation um uh, Cycle, and we do nothing about it. We are just, we're co-conspirators in our own demise. Well, I, and I, that that right there, I, I I just want everybody to pay attention to what he said. We are aware that we are being miseducated, and we're okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off, Stephanie. And it's it's funny because they in in school. So I work for a charter network, and I I like anecdotals as well. So I worked in a charter network where. Um, once the students got to eighth grade, they had this uh, literacy, literature project, sorry, that they would have to do in their language arts class. And part of it was to write a research paper on the civil rights movement. So, of course, in my special education class, my kids are expected to also write the same paper on the civil rights movement. But the problem was, as I'm presenting this to them, they don't get the full gravity of why the civil rights movement occurred. So I took it upon myself in my literacy class to then become a history teacher. So I had to go back and teach them about the triangle trade, um, why slavery, excuse me, happened, to give them a basis of why these people, our people, were so hell-bent on changing the way that they lived. And I remember one day I uh, I got observed by my instructional leader, and she was confused as to why I was uh, playing eyes on the prize in my classroom. Mm. And when I had my post-observation, she Man, said, well, they're supposed to be writing an essay, and uh, they're, they're watching a documentary. And I said, so, question, in the history class that we have here, was African-American history taught, or is it just U.S. history? Mm. From a stand, from a Eurocentric standpoint, because my baby mm. has no idea of why the civil rights movement was important, so I felt it necessary for me to go back and tell them why mm. people were being attacked by police officers and hoses and bitten by dogs, mm. and why, you know, they were taking their three-year-olds to sit at a lunch counter and show them why it was important that. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have to sit in the back of the restaurant. So I said, now my babies have a better understanding of this essay that you want them to write. And I said, and please understand, because this is a special ed classroom, we'll be doing uh, we'll be doing verbal presentations. They won't be writing the paper because I want I want to feel what they're feeling as they're giving this mm-hmm. oral mm-hmm. presentation. Exactly. And she she was dumbfounded. She didn't get it. She didn't get why I felt I had to go. I had to backtrack. To get she them got to, it. Like, this wasn't just an assignment for me. Mm-hmm. She got it. She's playing dumb. She got it. And she that's part of what she I'm just... talking about. That's why I don't like <laughs> She didn't want to you know, say, yeah. hey, teach to the test. She didn't want to say that mm-hmm. piece. She had to question your motives instead of mm-hmm. saying, hey, I know 
we do a shitty job here, but uh, teach to the test. It's crazy. Uh, but it's not just that she won't say we're doing a shitty job. What she will say is you're not doing your job. She will yeah, document exactly. it, memorialize it, you're write it down. You're not doing the prescribed so job that we have. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. When are we going to say enough is enough? You don't know what's best for my children. You don't know what's best for black children. And we're going to excuse ourselves from your 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 standard because your standard is yeah, not ours. It's actually a that's, growing that's network of, um, of African-American homeschoolers. So there, there is definitely a number of people in black communities who are taking that response and they are pulling their children out of school and they are homeschooling them. But again, we have to think about it intersectionally because there's a tremendous, tremendous portion of the population for which that privilege is just not ever going to be possible to take their kids out of school, especially when you think about them as whether they're single or, or dual parent home, but the, being working and low-class wage workers is not even exactly. not even a space for them to consider to think about taking their kids out of school. So it does take a different, again, intersectional approach where those who are in a space of privilege are advocating for socially responsive education, inclusive education, and creating the spaces and environment to where that is possible. Mm-hmm. I want to take a second real quick because we have Jerry on the line. He's the executive director of Early Childhood Initiatives in Dallas. Hey, Jerry. Hey, how you doing? Ah, great. Want to jump in and say anything? I do. I appreciate your conversation. Um, I'm actually uh, hosting next week some racial equity and education uh, forums for educators in here in Dallas, but I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, and I really want to say uh, a great segue to what you all are saying uh, is that we really have to uh, not be ahistorical about education. You know, like uh, the education system was not for our children. You know, we had, they had to write laws for our children. Uh, Dallas has the longest segregation policy uh, in the history of major city uh, schools. It was 40 years of desegregation, which means that the school district fought black kids out of the school you know, brown or had. So the schools that our kids go to are not originally for them. Uh, and so we really can't be ahistorical about these places. There's, there are places of racialization and places of control. And so uh, we really have to think about the implications of a school that our kids not meant for our kids. Even the curriculum is still the same in the 1950s because it was meant for white kids, but whites have divested from public school systems. And Chicago is less than 10%, and Dallas is less than 2% white, even though these cities are 30 to 40% white. We have to really think about those places and not be a historical about them. They are not for our kids. They were not. No. Mm-mm-mm. You guys have brought up some phenomenal, phenomenal points. We only have eight more minutes. So uh, let's start on these closing thoughts. First, I want to start off with Kim. Any closing thoughts for this discussion and any advice uh, you have for anyone uh-huh. listening? I I just want to say uh, don't discount the impact that you can have on our black and brown babies. Um, 
you you are enough, and it's the it's the little things that you can do just to excite a student for learning. Um, try to be a mentor, or even if you have that little cousin in your family that's not, you know, up to par and they're not doing what they're supposed to, sit down and have a conversation with them because you don't know how far that that conversation is going to impact them. Um, and just, you know, encourage some of our, you know, uh, our more elite uh, students of color, tell them to go into teaching. They have, you know, their mind is just not for economics and their mind is just not for law or medicine. Give back uh, to the community that you came from, and you can do that by being an educator. I think that edu- educators are uh, greatly disvalued in our culture, and that's just not an urban culture or African-American culture. As Americans, uh, teachers are disvalued. So let them know the value in education and, you know, encourage them to do more. That was wonderful, Kim. Um, let's see. Sam, any closing thoughts? Uh, just really quick, I believe, in um, culturally responsive education, I, I, I do believe that a community um, raises the child, so don't just look at it like you have to have the letters behind your name and, uh, or, you know, be in a professional setting. Reach out to anybody in your community who looks like you. Go back to your alma mater and volunteer. Volunteer at your church. Talk to the neighborhood kids. Talk to anybody who looks like they need some help. It's the only way we're going to be able to, to build our own is to build our own. Um, also, I think a, a huge piece to the uh, to our people is getting counseling, getting therapy, getting some type of psychological evaluation. The vast majority of people are suffering from PTSD and don't even realize it. Our students are being afflicted, uh, are, are afflicted with it because of the conditions that they grow up in and things of that nature. Be a mentor, be an ear, be a therapist to somebody. That's pretty much what, what how how I govern my life, and and I hope people can do the same. It's giving of yourself. Live a life of servitude. That's all we can do. Mm-hmm. All right, Tim. Any closing words? Yes, let me let me conclude with one of my favorite quotes, and it's from Carter Woodson, the Miseducation of the Negro, and it simply says, "When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions." You do not need to send him. No, I messed it up. Oh my God! No, start off. When you control a man's thinking, you don't need to worry about his actions. You don't need to tell him to stand here or to go yonder, for he will find his proper place and stay in it. You don't need to send him to the back door, for he will go without being told. In fact, if there is no back door, he will cut one for his special benefit. His education makes it necessary. And even though it should be self-explanatory, when I have high school students read that quote, they cannot interpret it for what it historically means. And what I get in conclusion from it is when you control a man's mind, then you control the man. And his education or education is the mechanism where you infiltrate the mind. Last quote that sums this up, I think it was Joseph Stalin who was coined for saying, don't kill your enemy. Educate him. He is is worth more educated than dead. So we have to really look at 
what we are as black people in America. Are we an educated enemy who is serving the purposes of our, you know, historic enemy, you know? Or are we the kings and queens that we know we have been, have the potential to be, and permitting these things to happen? And if we are permitting them, what must we do in our enlightenment to make sure that we don't continue on this road to destruction and ignorance? That was wonderful. I'm going to need you to send me those. (laughs) All right, Stephanie, okay. I I have one second, Stephanie. I have Chris. He's my friend. He's a teacher out of New York, and he really wants me to read this before we end. He says, urban youth of color are at a greater risk for violence exposure than their counterparts from other places and other races. When you see the expression of behaviors that we perceive as bad, rude, or disrespectful by young people, you better believe that it can be traced back to either witnessing or experiencing gross physical, emotional, or symbolic violence. This is not a way to justify an enactment of certain behaviors by young people. It is a way to be clear about where this comes from and to understand that we are all complacent in this process when we are constantly sharing images of people who look like them getting beat up and murdered on social media we are normalizing violence violence that gets acclimated over time and then expressed in the classroom how the hell can y'all make connections between a child who got beat up by an adult in one school and others who acted a fool with another you make this weak okay i'm gonna have to edit that part out (laughs) haven't haven't even began talking about teachers who are all ill-equipped for teaching. Many who are who claim to be called to teach but don't realize that you need to match your calling with some training and personal work. So thank you for that, Chris. Uh, Stephanie, any closing remarks from you? Well, I just want to reiterate that it is definitely up to us to create the space, to create the environment, to create the kind of education that we desire for our children to have. We cannot, as much as it is systemic, we have to be in those places to address those issues. But we also have to understand the historical rationale and relationships. People have pointed out that public education in its genesis was not meant for minoritized students. It wasn't even meant for the, the average white person. And the more that it developed, it developed in relationship to making laborers out of U.S. citizens, so creating a working-class space, which is why a lot of it operates in the same way as assembly lines operated during the Industrial Revolution. So much of what we know and understand about education is really to condition and to reframe minoritized populations, whether they're black and brown or or, um or in white or what have you, to be workers for those who actually educate children in extremely different ways, not in a repetitive, redundant, regurgitated, test-taking way. And much of what happens in terms of critical thinking and the true skills of intellectualism actually happen outside the doors of a classroom. They happen being able to create opportunities where children are experiencing um, culture where they are engaging and out in space, they're at museums, they're studying, they're in conversation with people that are living the kinds of lives that they're intrigued by. So we have to also be mindful in creating those opportunities as well 
because of what, what we will find out that what happens in elite society, quote unquote, in the United States, is that they don't educate their children at all in the same way that we are looking towards public education to be like the salvation for minoritized populations. And that's why Stephanie has written many books. <laughs> All right, you guys, thanks so much for tuning in to JL Radio. That hour went by quick. What y'all think? Way too fast, yeah. (laughs) If you want to hear it again or share (laughs) Yeah, if you want to hear it again or share it, feel free to visit JessicaLashon.com. I'm your host, and these are my wonderful friends. You guys are so awesome. Thanks so much. We're going to close it out with Kanye West, Texas Sky, because you can never go wrong with Kanye. All right, bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Great. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'm a tough guy. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'm a tough guy. Back when they thought pink polos are hurt to rock. Before Cam got the shit to pop, the doors are closed. I felt like bad boy street team. I couldn't work the lock. Now let's go. Take them back to the plan. Me and my mama hopped in that U-Haul van. Any pessimists, I ain't talk to them. Plus, I ain't had no phone in my apartment. Let's take them back to the club. At least about an hour, I stand online. I just wanted to dance. I went to Jacob an hour after I got my advance. I just wanted to shine. Jake's favorite line, dog, in due time. Now they look at me like, damn, dog, you what I am. A hip-hop legend, I think I died in an accident. Because this must be heaven. I gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'm a tough guy. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'm a tough guy.